Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. I'm a huge fan of Christmas carols. Like, I really, really like them a lot. And at the same time, I really hate Christmas carols. Like, it's this paradox that kind of rubs up against each other. And this isn't just the sense of the question, when should we start playing Christmas carols, right? You know, there's that whole argument that people say, oh, any time that, you know, after Halloween, it's good, November 1st, bring out that playlist, here comes the Christmas carols. Those people are crazy, and they don't belong anywhere near me. I don't like that very much. It should be the day after Thanksgiving is fine, and honestly, it shouldn't be until you put up that Christmas tree. And you had better not put that Christmas tree up before Thanksgiving. What is wrong with you? One holiday at a time. I know we're multitaskers, but one holiday at a time. That's how this works. But it's not about that. It's not about that. It's more the idea and the sound of the Christmas carols that rub me a little bit wrong. When I was growing up, one of my favorite things to do was Christmas Eve. Our family was really rather large. I have four uh, aunts and uncles plus, you know, my dad. So it's a family of five and all the cousins would get together with the aunts and the uncles and my grandma and my grandpa and we would cram ourselves into their living room. It was such a small space that you didn't quite fit very well. You would, if you had to go to the bathroom in the midst of the presents and the other things that we would do in that traditional setting, you were literally climbing over one another in like this like matrix slash mission impossible sort of thing so that you didn't trip over someone's drink and spill it on them because it was typically hot chocolate or it was hot tea or something very warm and you wanted to make sure that you didn't knock those things over in the living room, right? We're all crammed into this space and all the grandkids, all the cousins were smashed up against this Christmas tree that had so many presence, just like flowing out from underneath the tree. I mean, it was like this tidal wave of wrapping paper and boxes and bows and ribbons on top, like underneath this like giant tree that we would put up every year after Thanksgiving. It was this beautiful scene of just presence and all the grandkids were smushed up against that, just waiting, drooling waiting to get the five or six presents that you were going to get from your cousin, from grandma and grandpa, from each of your aunts and uncles. Like It was amazing. You were just waiting because it was Christmas Eve. My family didn't open presents until Christmas Day. So like Christmas Eve was like the presents day. So exciting. But before we could open the presents that were just waiting and that we were trying to shake and feel and, and get around our hands, before that happened, two things had to happen first. Christmas carols and the reading of Luke chapter 2. <laughs> yeah. The Christmas carols were always led by my Uncle Bob. 
Now, now Bob would say, okay, we're going to sing this one. And then everybody would sing it. And we had these like little tiny Christmas carol hymnal books that were like this big. They were like three by five note cards, right? But they were like these printed Christmas carol books. And we would, he would be, flip to page seven for O Come All Ye Faithful. And we would sing, O Come All Ye Faithful. And then it would be, now we're going to sing The Three Wise Men. It's on page 12. And now we're going to sing this and this. And he would just drag it out year after year after year after year to where at first it was only three or four. It was only three or four Christmas carols, but then it became five, six, seven. And I, I swear by the end of it, by the end of it, we were singing every single Christmas carol. Carols I had never heard in my life that were tucked inside of this 30-page little booklet. I had no idea there were so many Christmas carols. That's when I started to hate Christmas carols because it prevented me. It made me wait in greater anticipation to open those stupid presents. Then we would have to read Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is not very long. Just so you know. But for a kid that is waiting in anticipation of those presents, it is the longest, most excruciating chapter in all of Scripture. It is like the longest tome of everything ever smushed together. And you're just like, Grandpa, read faster, please. But the Christmas carols, the Christmas carols, the Christmas carols, they were always so peaceful. Did you ever notice that? Every time you sing a Christmas carol, it's always so beautiful and so peaceful. The words that are behind it are just teeming with peace. And if you can just imagine this family of 30 plus people sitting in this living room singing together in the 80s. So big hair. Weird colored shirt, shag carpet, funky looking couches, singing together these songs of peace, proclaiming together as a family this peace on earth and goodwill towards men. It didn't quite sit well with the reality under the surface. You see, the last time we ever did that as a family, I was in the fifth grade. Because shortly after that Christmas, my grandmother passed away. And that began, she just passed away unexpectedly, and that began a, a flood of opening the gates of non-peace within our family. And this juxtaposition, this, this love of peace within our family that we would proclaim, and the reality that was now bursting forth that was really true the whole time. It was only a few short months after that that my, my uncle committed suicide. And after that, a second uncle of mine committed suicide. And shortly after that, one of my uncles decided he wanted nothing to do with the family any longer and completely separated himself from the family. Year after year after year, we attempted to rein in this sense of peace, of pulling everything back together, and yet it was unraveling before us, all around us. No peace. No peace. 
for a people that so desperately wanted peace, for a people that so, so vehemently proclaimed peace every single Christmas in our Christmas carols and in our songs and how we interacted with one another, underneath the surface was this rumble, this, this rumble of pain and this rumble of animosity and this rumble that ex exploded onto the scene separating a family of peace into what? Luke chapter 2 is really similar in that. Luke chapter 2 is the story of the birth of Jesus. And oftentimes, every, every time that this was read to me growing up, every single time I came across this story, it was just a story. It was just this beautiful story of this birth of the baby Jesus, so sanitized, so clean, so neat, that in the field, these shepherds were just sitting around, hanging out, tending their sheep, tending their flock, when an angel appears and says, go see the baby Jesus. And so they're like, oh, let's go do this. Yeah, let's go. And so they march their way into town, and they go and they visit this beautiful newborn baby, and they're so excited about this baby, and they worship him. And then, then later, we talked about this last week, the wise men came in, and they saw this beautiful baby Jesus, and everything about it is clean and sanitized for our consumption. But the reality is really different. You see, Luke was a historian. He was a man that followed around Paul and tried to gather all of the information that he possibly could about who this Jesus was, to communicate about this Jesus to everyone that would listen. He wrote it down in this gospel called Luke. It's the third gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the third telling, so to speak, of this Jesus the third iteration from a different perspective to communicate who this Jesus was. And in Luke chapter 2, he begins very politically, very differently than, than you might expect in the telling of a birth. He situates this birth of Jesus in a political climate, and a political culture. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, Caesar Augustus was literally the ruler of the world. He was the, I'm the king of the world kind of guy, right? That is who Caesar Augustus was. At this point in time, the whole Roman Empire stretched all the way to the Britons in England, all the way down to India and northern Africa. Like, it was, it was huge. It was a vast empire that, that consumed multitudes and multitudes of people that were underneath his rule. In fact, Caesar Augustus is a really fascinating uh, character in history, not just because he was the emperor, not because he ruled the entire world, but he was the son of Julius Caesar. And when you look back at who Julius Caesar was and like his life and all that, if, if you've read you know, the play, the Shakespeare play, Julius Caesar kind of thing, you come to find out that Julius Caesar kind of was deified. He was, he was fashioned as a god. When he died, the, the, the Senate and the religious leaders of the day said, there goes Caesar ascending into heaven on the throne of God. 
Like he was going to be, he was the God that came to be. And so Augustus liked that idea a lot. I mean, not just a little bit, but like, like a lot. He loved the idea that his dad was God because then that made him the son of God. In fact, not only did he believe this, he propagated this all throughout the empire, having coins made with that written on it. Caesar Augustus, the son of God. This was how they communicated in the Roman world of, of all sorts of like propaganda and what they wanted, what the emperor wanted to communicate to his people. And so he had a fashion on these coins, the son of God. He even said time, a time or two, there is no name under heaven by which men may be saved than Caesar Augustus. If you know the book of Acts, that's what the early church also said. There's no name under heaven by which men may be saved than Jesus Christ. They kind of started to co-opt some of these sayings that Augustus had. But this is the Augustus that ruled and reigned over the entire known world. Not only that, but he was a pretty vicious ruler as well. One who said that peace only comes through the sword, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. In fact, he believed very, very heavily that peace only came through the empire. That peace only came through war. Peace only came through submission. Peace only came through your oppression. But it wasn't really oppression. Has, has anybody seen the, the TV show Man in the High Castle? No? Okay, I don't, so it was none of you. Somebody told me about this show, like, years ago. And I'm not kidding. I, I'm, whoever told me to watch this show, I'm sorry it took me so long to get around to it, because it's ridiculously good. But there's this one scene where the new Fuhrer, it's like this, it's this like dystopian sort of, what would ha what, how would the world look like if, if Nazi Germany actually won World War II? That's kind of the idea behind the whole thing. It's super fascinating, and it's taking place in like the 60s. And so the new Fuhrer, because Hitler is, is dead at this point, says that there's only going to be one more war, and then we will have complete and total peace. One more war is all we need, and then everyone will be subject to our whims and our wills, and that is peace. Peace through submission. Peace through oppression. Peace through war. This was the idea that Augustus had as well. And if you did not submit, if you did not submit, he would very literally kill you. You would die. He would crucify you in front of people. He would murder you in front of people. He would just end your life. Right there, as an example for all to see, because that is how we have peace. This is the world that Jesus grew up in. Jesus was not a Roman citizen. Jesus was a Jewish little baby, the lowest of the low on the social totem pole in this culture and in this setting and in this city and in this place. He was the lowest of the low, and Mary and Joseph were also the lowest of the low. They had nothing and were given no rights. They were given no sanctuary, no safety, no reason to believe that anything was ever going to get better as long as Augustus was there. There would be no true 
peace. No true peace at all. So Joseph, now there's this census needing to be taken. And Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. Also another very political scene here. Because the Israelites, the, the Hebrew people, the Jews of the time, all believed that King David's rule and reign was going to come back. That it was going to supplant this emperor that ruled over them. And that some way, somehow, this King David's line was going to come back and rescue them. Free them. Break their chains of bondage. And all oppression shall cease. Oh, holy night, anyone? We just sang it, right? That this is what was going to happen in the midst of it. So here we have this family that comes from this very royal line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. They hadn't been married yet. They weren't married. And here is Joseph bringing his pregnant, soon-to-be wife making them even lower on the totem pole in society because here is a scandal brewing. How on earth did Mary get pregnant if there was no Joseph involved? Well, obviously it was another man. And her whole story of this immaculate conception thing, ooh, that's a little scandalous. That's a little crazy. That Mary has done lost her mind. Pregnancy hormones have come, right? Like those sorts of things. Everybody's like lobbing it at her as a weaponized sort of thing. And here she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And get this, and they were terrified. Just, just imagine, you're in a pitch black area. You, you're in the countryside, in the hills, and you have nothing around you but sheep, okay? Your flock is around you, and you might have, you know, a campfire going, and you're hanging out with your friends, but it is dark everywhere. Now, the shepherds weren't like ninnies, right? They weren't like these, like, weenies. They were like, they protected their flock from lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Whatever that would come in the middle of the night to attack their flock, they would go and attack them back. Like, they would, they would get rid of the threat that was there that went to steal a sheep. These were pretty tough dudes that, that really didn't have a whole lot of fear. But here, in the middle of the night, this angel appears, and the text says, they were terrified. All around this angel of the Lord is this bright light that lights up the horizon and they can see all the darkness that was around them is now illuminated because of the light from this angel of the Lord that is present. I mean, that's enough to terrify me, but I'm sure they knew their history somewhat well, that they knew their Old Testament, and that the only time the angel of the Lord appeared in the Old Testament, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, was in condemnation, in judgment, to execute a death sentence upon someone. 
In fact, in 1 Kings 19, the angel of the Lord appeared and wiped out a town of 185,000 people. So if I'm a shepherd and the angel of the Lord appears, I just wet myself. I'm just going to put that out there. Like, I'm okay saying that, but I would have just wet myself. And not only that, I would have screamed the loudest scream in the world of fear and of terror. These are these men. And the first words out of the angel's mouth are, do not be afraid. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry. I'm not sure that would have put me at ease. I'm not sure I would have been okay with that. I'm like, oh, cool, good. The angel of the Lord has just appeared and now everything's great. Yeah, I got this, this is great. I'm not sure that would have been my reaction. I think I still would have been pretty scared. I, I probably would have tried to hide behind a friend, <laughs> right? Like you kind of inch behind him like, hey, nice to see you, right? You're scared. You're terrified at what is happening. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. It has been given to you, a Savior. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be your sign. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. I'm still going to be scared. I'm still going to be a little terrified. And not only that, but then a whole host of angels show up. Right? It's not just now one angel of the Lord, but a whole host. The whole sky is filled with these angels singing and proclaiming glory to God in the highest. What? Right? That's, that's a lot. It's, it's funny because we have some new parents in, in our community, and I, too, am a somewhat new parent, six-year-old, right? I mean, I still want to claim new parenthood because I have no idea what I'm doing most days. Have you ever seen, Trevor will know this pretty well, have you ever seen how many pictures a new parent takes of their baby? And now that we have social media, like, it is blasted everywhere. I have friends that are like on their fifth kid, right? And the amount of like pictures that go out are still the same with baby number five. You're like, what? It's like this grand announcement of like everything. You want the whole world to see and know that you have this kid, that you have this baby, and this is what this baby looks like, this is how this baby acts, this is everything about this baby. I think they're kind of, playing off what God did, right? Here's God saying, hey, it's cool. We're going to freak you out here in a minute. But God's pretty excited that he's got a baby boy. Here it comes. Glory to God in the highest day. Everybody is like screaming and praising it. And God is like, yeah, let's let him have it. Let's let him have it. Let's see this baby. And not only that, but this baby has arrived. Go, 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 go see him. I, I Just go see him. It's going to be amazing. Go see my baby boy, right? Like you have to say, you have to hold the baby, right? Like Seinfeld, just in case. Um, it's okay. 
But that's kind of God's reaction here in the midst of this. He's super excited to have everyone see because this baby is coming to bring peace. Peace. But not the kind of peace that we think. Not the kind of peace that Caesar Augustus believed in. This peace through war, this peace through, through bloodshed, this peace through oppression, this peace through submission. Not that kind of peace, but a different peace. The, the word peace, going back to the Hebrew, is the word shalom. It's, it's not the kind of understanding of peace that we have today, but, but rather it's this, this understanding of wholeness, of togetherness, of bringing everything back together to the way that it was always meant to be but new and beautiful and whole and together. It's a piece that says our relationship with God can be brought back together. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that once we were enemies with God, but now through the shed blood of Jesus, we are now made whole. We are now friends. We are now children of God. That this peace that came through Jesus came to bring that relationship together in a right relationship. It's a peace that says no longer do you have to have other people submit to you to have a sense of peace. But that there can be equality, that we're all on this same plane level together, that you and I can be in right relationship with one another, that there is no need to have enmity or animosity or hatred towards one another but that we can be pulled together in right relationship. The same is said of ourselves, that, that no longer do we have to have these questions of who we are, this identity. Who am I at the very depths, the very core of my being? But peace, wholeness can come into that situation and into that place and pull you together, whole, as one. The same is true of us in creation. That the world is groaning, it says in Romans. The world is groaning for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. That we can have wholeness with this world around us, with this created order. That we can pull that together because of Jesus. There is wholeness that is possible in our lives. There is wholeness that is possible, too, in our families. I oftentimes think about my family and the, what once was. It'll never go back to the way that it was. Grandma is dead and gone. My grandfather passed away last year at the age of 90. And the, for the past 30 years, spent his time trying to pull the family back together did everything that he could to be a maker of peace in our family. And I know that it'll never get back to the way that it was. But I do know that I can step forward as a maker of peace in my family. That I can say words of love and kindness and grace and mercy to my aunts and uncles that are, uh, that are distant now that we can see a new iteration of life come together, of wholeness, pulling us back together. 
my grandfather's funeral last year was the first time I had seen my uncle in over a decade. It had been over a decade since I had seen him last, and the last time that I saw him was just a random chance encounter. And we sat down, and we got to talk, and I got to see one of my cousins that I hadn't seen in almost 20 years. And we got to talk and catch up a little bit about life and what things look like. The promise was made, let's not let another 10 years pass. Let's work these things out, at least us. If you can't find peace with other members of our family, maybe we can find peace, and maybe together we can be a bridge towards something new and something beautiful and something grand as this family comes back together. But I'm telling you, it's not easy. It's not easy because it feels like you're herding cats. You're just holding cats by the tail as they want to run and sprint away, and you, you do everything that you can to pull it all together, but it's just not there. It's difficult, and it's tough. Walter Brueggemann wrote this about peace and shalom. He said, shalom is rooted in a theology of hope, in the powerful, buoyant conviction that the world can and will be transformed and renewed, that life can and will be changed, and newness can and will come as I sit in this space with my family of hoping that peace can be restored. That's what it is. At the very depths, at the very core of peace is hope. Hope that things can be different, that things can change, that things can be new and beautiful again. The world doesn't allow us to believe this a lot of times. That peace is a pipe dream. That peace only comes through war. And I love the, the Banksy, uh, <laughs> this Banksy image. Peace on earth. And you'll notice the star of Bethlehem there right over to the side. And terms and conditions apply. I think that's how oftentimes we see peace on earth. That there are terms and conditions. It's the Apple end user agreement. Right? <laughs> that no one ever reads. That these are the terms and the conditions that do apply. But peace is possible. Peace, this is the story of Jesus, that peace can happen. That peace is near if only we continue to hope and believe in this coming of Jesus, this birth of Jesus that came to give and bring peace on earth to all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the followers of Christ, this is our role, this is our rule of life. The followers of Christ have been called to peace. And they must not only have peace, but also make it. To that end, they renounce all violence and tumult. His disciples keep the peace by choosing to endure suffering rather than inflict it on others. They maintain fellowship where others would break it off. They renounce hatred and wrong. In so doing, they overcome evil with good and establish the peace of God in the midst of a world of war and hate. You and I have been called to be makers of peace. You and I have been called as the children, as the followers of God, to step into the difficult spaces of our families, into the difficult spaces of our co-workers, into the difficult spaces of this world around us, and to make 
peace, to create peace. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, or blessed are the makers of peace. We, you and me, are the people of hope. You and me are the people of peace. We are the people this world has been waiting for to make that peace, to create that peace around us because of what Jesus came to do. You and I get to partner with him in the creation of peace. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.